Section 1, Part 1 Narrative, etc., etc. In the month of June, 1821, I embarked on board the merchant ship Harrington, and proceeded on a voyage to the West Indies. Subsequent events, however, induced me to resign my situation in that vessel and devote myself to other pursuits. After having passed nearly two years in that part of the world and finding my health somewhat impaired by the climate, I became anxious to see my family once more, and made the necessary arrangements for my return to England. Being then at Kingston, in the island of Jamaica, I communicated my wishes to a Captain Talbot, an intimate friend, who very kindly undertook to forward my views, and introduced and recommended me to Mr. Lumsden, the master of the merchant brig Zephyr, which vessel was at that time waiting for freight to London. In consequence of this introductory recommendation, I entered into an agreement with that person to accompany him as his first mate, and about the middle of April, 1822, I commenced the duties of my office. The season that year had been very unfavorable to the planters. The crops had in many instances failed, and freights were in consequence very scarce. The lading of the Zephyr therefore proceeded very slowly, and I became daily more anxious for my return. In the meantime, I embarked in a trifling speculation, and purchased and shipped a quantity of coffee on board the brig on my own account, from time to time consulting and advising with Mr. Lumsden as to the best methods of completing our lading. Some time, however, still elapsed before we could attain our object, and during this interval I discovered so many unamiable traits in the character of that person as to cause very unfavorable impressions on my mind towards him. His ignorance and want of education betrayed themselves on almost every occasion, nor was I surprised at the discovery when I was afterwards informed that he had been originally bred to the coal trade, and had been nearly all his life employed in that capacity. Towards the latter end of June we had completed our cargo, and having taken on board our passengers, who consisted of a Captain Cooper, five or six children, and a black woman as a servant, we sailed on the twenty-ninth and proceeded down to Port Royal, where we anchored for the night. Mr. Lumsden, with some friends belonging to the children, and a lady of color at whose house he had lodged during his stay on the island, followed the vessel in a boat, and came on board at Port Royal. The boat was then sent for another passenger, and on his arrival, the person who had accompanied Mr. Lumsden returned on shore. On the following morning, we weighed anchor and left the port, and, having discharged the pilot, proceeded on our voyage with a moderate breeze and fine weather but very soon afterwards encountered strong northeasterly winds, accompanied by a heavy swell from the eastward. Mr. Lumsden now seemed anxious to consult me as to future proceedings, and asked me whether I should deem it advisable for him to ply for the windward, or to bear up for the leeward passage. The opinion which I had formed of his character rendered me unwilling to hazard my advice, 
as I did not wish to have any responsibility thrown on me hereafter from what might be the result of his own ignorance and want of skill. As, however, I could not, consistently with my duty, altogether refuse my opinion, I confine my answer merely to pointing out the advantages and disadvantages of each, without evincing any prepossession in favour of either. The windward passage, I informed him, might prolong the voyage, but the leeward would expose us to the risk of being plundered by pirates and perhaps the total destruction of the vessel, of which the accounts in the daily journals gave two melancholy warnings, and therefore I should recommend him to be guided by his own judgment and experience. Without considering much upon the subject, he decided upon the latter, notwithstanding the perils to which such a measure might expose him. In consequence of this determination, we steered for the great Caymans, which islands the heavy sailing of the Zephyr and the unusual lightness of the winds prevented us from reaching until the fourth day. The inhabitants came off to us in canoes, and we purchased a few parrots, some turtles, and a quantity of shells. From thence we steered for Cape St. Antonio, the southwest point of the island of Cuba, and on our passage spoke to a schooner belonging to St. John's, New Brunswick, on her return from Kingston. This vessel had made an unsuccessful attempt to ply for the windward passage, and had abandoned it on the fifth or sixth day. We parted company in the night, and on the following morning made Cape St. Antonio. The wind was still light, and the weather fine. Having got round the cape, we stood to eastward, and the breezes freshened and became more favorable. At daylight on the following morning we discovered two sail ahead, standing the same course, and in the forenoon, the day being remarkably clear and fine, took a very good observation of the sun's altitude. At two o'clock p.m., while walking the deck in conversation with Captain Cooper, I discovered a schooner standing out towards us from the land. She bore a very suspicious appearance, and I immediately went up aloft with my telescope to examine her more closely. I was instantly convinced that she was a pirate, and mentioned it to Cooper, who coincided with me, and we deemed it proper to call Mr. Lumsden from below and inform him. When he came on deck we pointed out the schooner and stated our suspicions, recommending him to alter his course and avoid her. We were at this moment about six leagues from Cape Roman, which bore southeast by east. Never did ignorance, with its concomitant obstinacy, betray itself more strongly than on this occasion. He rejected our advice, and refused to alter his course, and was infatuated enough to suppose that, because he bore the English flag, no one would dare to molest him. To this obstinacy and infatuation I must attribute all my subsequent misfortunes, the unparalleled cruelties which I have suffered, the persecutions and prosecutions which I have undergone, the mean and wanton insults which have been heaped upon me, and the villainy and dishonesty to which I have been exposed from the author of them all, who, not satisfied with having occasioned my sufferings, would have basely taken advantage of them to defraud my friends of what little of my property had escaped the general plunder. 
In about half an hour, after this conversation, we began to discover that the deck of the schooner was full of men, and that she was beginning to hoist out her boats. This circumstance greatly alarmed Mr. Lumsden, and he ordered the course to be altered two points, but it was then too late, for the stranger was within gunshot. In a short time she was within hail, and, in English, ordered us to lower our stern-boat and send the captain on board of her. Mr. Lumsden either did not understand the order, or pretended not to do so, and the corsair, for such she now proved to be, fired a volley of musketry. This increased his terror, which he expressed in hurried exclamations of, "'Aye, aye! Oh, Lord God!' and then gave orders to lay the main yard aback. A boat from the pirate now boarded the Zephyr, containing nine or ten men of a most ferocious aspect, armed with muskets, knives, and cutlasses, who immediately took charge of the brig, and ordered Captain Cooper, Mr. Lumsden, the ship's carpenter, and myself, to go on board the pirate, hastening our departure by repeated blows with the flat part of their cutlasses, over our backs, and threatening to shoot us. The rapidity of our movements did not give us much time for consideration, and while we were rowing towards the Corsair, Mr. Lumsden remarked that he had been very careless in leaving the books, which contained the account of all the money on board, on the cabin table. The captain of the pirate ordered us on deck immediately on our arrival. He was a man of most uncouth and savage appearance, about five feet six inches in height, stout in proportion, with aquiline nose, high cheekbones, a large mouth, and very large, full eyes. His complexion was sallow, and his hair black, and he appeared to be about two and thirty years of age. In his appearance, he very much resembled an Indian, and I was afterwards informed that his father was a Spaniard, and his mother a Yucatan squaw. He first addressed Mr. Lumsden, and inquired in broken English what the vessels were that he saw ahead. On being informed that they were French merchantmen, he gave orders for all hands to go in chase. The Zephyr was observed in the meantime to make sail and stand in the direction of Cape Roman. The captain now addressed himself to Mr. Lumsden on the subject of his cargo, which he was informed consisted of sugars, rum, coffee, arrowroot, dye woods, etc. He then severally inquired who and what we were, and then whether we had spoken any vessel on our passage. On being informed of the schooner from New Brunswick, he asked if we thought she had specie on board. We told him that those vessels in general sold their cargoes for cash, and he seemed very anxious to learn whether she was ahead or astern of us, and whether she was armed. Mr. Lumsden now entreated the captain to make a signal to the Zephyr not to stand nearer to the land, as he was apprehensive of her going on shore, and was told that he need not be under any alarm, as there was a very experienced pilot on board of her. He was, however, dissatisfied with this reply, and repeated his entreaty, when the other, in a menacing tone, enjoined silence, and went forward. In a short time he returned and questioned Mr. Lumsden, 
as to what money he had on board, and when told that there was none, he replied, Do not imagine that I am a fool, sir. I know that all vessels going to Europe have specie on board, and if you will give up what you have, you shall proceed on your voyage without further molestation. Mr. Lumsden repeated his answer, and the pirate declared that if the money was not produced, he would detain the Zephyr, throw her cargo overboard, and if any was found concealed, he would burn her with every soul belonging to her. He then asked whether there were any candles, wine, or porter on board, and Mr. Lumsden foolishly replied, not any that he could spare, without appearing to consider that we were in his power, and that he could, if he pleased, possess himself of anything he might wish, without consulting his convenience. The night was at this time fast approaching, and the breeze had begun to die away. The captain appeared to despair of coming up with his chase, which we could now clearly perceive to be a ship and a brig, and asked Captain Cooper and myself whether he should be able to overtake them before dark. We replied in the negative, and he then gave orders to shorten sail and stand towards the Zephyr. The pirates then began to prepare for supper, and were very liberal in serving out spirits to our boat's crew, and also offered us a share or wine if we preferred it, but we declined both. The captain now turned to me and said that, as he was in a bad state of health and none of his ship's company understood navigation, he should detain me for the purpose of navigating the schooner. I tried as much as possible to conceal my emotions at this intimation, and endeavored to work upon his feelings by telling him that I was married and had three children, that they, together with my wife and aged parents, were anxiously expecting me at home, and represented in as pathetic language as I could the misery and distraction which it would cause them, beseeching him to spare my wife and children, and not bring down the gray hairs of my unfortunate parents with sorrow to the grave. But I appealed to a monster, devoid of all feeling, inured to crime and hardened in iniquity. Mr. Lumsden, in the meantime, interfered, and hoped that he would not deprive him of my services. But he savagely told him, If I do not keep him, I shall keep you. This threat evidently alarmed and agitated him, and he seemed to regret the part he had taken. A few minutes, however, displayed the unfeeling and selfish character of this man in the strongest light. "'Mr. Smith,' said he, turning to me, "'for God's sake do not importune the captain, or he will certainly take me. You are a single man, but I have a large family dependent upon me, who will become orphans and be utterly destitute.' The moment I am liberated, I shall proceed to the Havana, and dispatch a man of war in search of the Corsair, and at the same time publish to the world the manner in which you have been forcibly detained. Nay, I will represent the whole affair at Lloyd's, and should the pirate be captured hereafter, and you found on board, no harm shall befall you. Whatever property you have shall be safely delivered to your family, and mine will forever bless you for the kind and generous act. During this address he was much affected, and the tears streamed from his eyes. 
I sympathized in his feelings and replied that I hoped that neither of us would be detained. But if the lot must fall upon one under these circumstances and on these conditions, I would consent to become the victim. This declaration calmed his agitated spirits, but little did I think of the treachery and duplicity that had been masked beneath them, and which subsequent events have too clearly demonstrated. Supper having been prepared, the captain and his officers, six or seven in number, sat down to it, and invited us to join them, which, for fear of giving offence and exciting their brutality, we did. Our supper consisted of garlic and onions chopped fine and mixed up with bread in a bowl, for which there was a general scramble, everyone helping himself as he pleased, either with his fingers or any instrument with which he happened to be supplied. During supper, Mr. Lumsden begged to be allowed to go on board the Zephyr to the children, as he was fearful that they would be alarmed at our absence and the presence of strangers, in which request I joined. But he replied that no one would injure them, and that as soon as the two vessels came to an anchor, he would accompany us on board. The Corsair was at this time fast approaching the Zephyr, when the captain ordered a musket to be fired, and then tacked in shore. The signal was immediately answered, and the brig followed our movements. One of our boat's crew was then ordered to the lead, with directions to give notice the moment he found soundings, and the captain then inquired if we had any Americans on board as seamen. He expressed himself very warmly against them, and declared he would kill all belonging to that nation in revenge for the injuries that he had sustained at their hands, one of his vessels having been lately taken and destroyed by them adding at the same time that if he discovered that we had concealed the fact from him he would punish us equally to the americans he said that he should never give quarter but as all nations were hostile to spain he would attack all the man at the lead during this conversation gave notice of soundings in fourteen fathoms and the captain ordered the boat down and told mr lumsden he would accompany him on board his vessel the men we had brought were ordered into the boat, but Captain Cooper, the carpenter, and myself were not allowed to go into her. The boat then proceeded towards the Zephyr, with Mr. Lumsden and the captain of the Corsair, and shortly after returned with some of the men whom the pirate had put on board, who brought with them Captain Cooper's watch, the ship's spyglass, and my telescope, together with some of my clothes and a goat. The goat had no sooner reached the deck than one of these inhuman wretches cut its throat, and proceeded to flay it while it was yet alive, telling us at the same time that we should all be served in the same manner if no money was found on board. The Corsair had then got into four fathoms water and came to an anchor, as also did the Zephyr about fifty yards from her, and the pirates that were on board began hailing their companions and congratulating one another at their success. The watch on board the Corsair was now set, and Captain Cooper, the carpenter, and myself were ordered to sleep on the companion. Thither we repaired, but to sleep was impossible. The carpenter then took an opportunity of informing us that there was specie on board, and expressed his apprehension that, if discovered, 
the cruel threat would be put into execution. Captain Cooper and myself, however, were ignorant of the circumstance, and felt rather inclined to believe that the carpenter was mistaken. But he assured us that such was the case, and that Mr. Lumsden had consulted him a day or two before about a place for its concealment. The expression which had dropped from him in the boat then occurred to us, but we still felt inclined to believe that it was some private money of his own. The whole night was passed in giving way to various conjectures, and hope and fear, and the dread of assassination completely drove sleep away. Each reflected on what might be his future fate, and imparted his hopes or his apprehensions to his fellow-sufferers. At daylight we perceived the pirates on board beating the Zephyr's crew with their cutlasses, and began to tremble for our own safety. After this we perceived the sailors at work hoisting out their boats, and hauling a rope-cable from the after-hatchway, and coiling it on deck as if preparing to take out the brig's cargo. The crew of the Corsair, meanwhile, began to take their coffee, and the officers invited us to partake of some, which we willingly did, and found it very refreshing after a night spent in sleepless apprehension. At seven o'clock the captain hailed his crew from the Zephyr, where he had passed the night, and ordered the boat to be sent, in which he returned in a short time with some curiosities belonging to myself. On his arrival he approached me, and, brandishing a cutlass over my head, told me to go on board the Zephyr, and bring everything necessary for the purposes of navigation, as it was his determination to keep me. To this mandate I made no reply. So, brandishing his cutlass again, he asked me with an oath if I heard him. I replied that I did, when, with a ferocious air, he said, Mind and obey me then, or I'll take off your skin. At this threat I went into the boat and pulled towards the Zephyr, and on my arrival found Mr. Lumsden at the gangway. I told him the nature of my visit at which he expressed his sorrow, but advised me not to oppose the pirate, lest it might produce bad usage, as he seemed bent upon detaining me. He then informed me that they had taken possession of everything, and that he himself had narrowly escaped assassination on account of his watch. On entering my cabin I found my chest broken to pieces, and its contents taken away with two diamond rings and some articles of value. From a seaman I received my gold watch, sextant, and some other valuable things, which I had previously given to him to conceal, and with these I returned to my own state-room, and proceeded to pack up what few clothes had been left by the plunderers. My books, parrot, and various other articles I gave in charge to Mr. Lumsden, who engaged to deliver them safely into the hands of my friends, should he reach England. The Corsair had, during the interim, weighed anchor and hauled alongside of the Zephyr, and, having made fast, the crew had commenced moving all the trunks on board of her. Among these was the desk of Captain Cooper, containing all his papers and vouchers which he begged me to claim as mine, and recover for him, for which purpose he gave me the key. Well aware of the serious loss he would sustain, I undertook the dangerous task, and, passing into the Corsair, informed the captain that my desk had been taken, and begged, as it only contained papers, 
which were of importance to my family, that it might be restored. He ordered me to open it, and, having examined the interior, he granted my request, and I had the pleasure of obliging Captain Cooper, who, in return, promised to represent my case to the underwriters at Lloyd's. The pirates next commenced taking out the Zephyr's cargo, at which Mr. Lumsden and myself were compelled to assist, but the former was soon after removed on board the schooner, in consequence of the crying of the children who, the captain said, had been instigated by him to do so. There he was employed in striking the cargo into the hatchways. The pirates in the meantime became intoxicated and gave way to the most violent excesses. All subordination was at an end, and equality seemed to be the order of the day. Mr. Lumsden was now called on board the Zephyr, and questioned as to the cargo down the main hatchway, when he read and explained the manifesto. Orders were immediately given to four sailors and myself to prepare for hoisting the cargo up and to clear away the dye wood that was in our way. Mr. Lumsden directed us to throw it overboard, which we commenced doing, and threw some over. But this was prevented by the captain, who said that he only wanted to throw the ship's cargo overboard, in order to say that it was taken from him, and defraud the underwriters. We continued our occupation until we had hoisted up two scroons of indigo, a quantity of arrowroot, and as much coffee as they thought sufficient. The seamen were then ordered to send down the foretop gallant mast and yard, both of which were taken on board the pirate, with whatever spars they thought would be of utility. Even the playful innocence of the children could not protect them from the barbarity of these ruffians. Their earrings were taken out of their ears, and they were left without a bed to lie upon, or a blanket to cover them. They next commenced taking out the ship's stores, with all the livestock and some water, and Mr. Lumsden and Captain Cooper were then ordered on the quarter-deck, and told that if they did not either produce the money, or tell where it was concealed, the Zephyr should be burned and they wither. On this occasion the same answer was given as before, and the inhuman wretch instantly prepared to put his threat into execution, by sending the children on board the schooner, and ordering those two gentlemen to be taken below decks, and to be locked into the pumps. The mandate was no sooner issued than it was obeyed by his fiend-like myrmidons, who even commenced piling combustibles round them. The apparent certainty of their fate extorted a confession from Lumsden, who was released and taken on deck where he went to the roundhouse and produced a small box of doubloons, which the pirate exhibited with an air of exultation to the crew. He then insisted that there was more, and notwithstanding that the other made the most solemn asseverations to the contrary, and that even what he had given was not his own, he was again lashed to the pumps. The question was then applied to Captain Cooper, and fire was ordered to be put to the combustibles piled round him. Seeing his fate inevitable, he offered to surrender all he had, and, being released, he gave them about nine doubloons, declaring that what he had produced was all he had, and had been entrusted to his care for a poor woman who, for aught he knew, might at this moment be in a state of starvation. "'Do not speak to me of poor people,' exclaimed the fiend. "'I am poor, 
and your countrymen and the Americans have made me so. I know there is more money, and will either have it or burn you in the vessel. The unfortunate man was then once more ordered below, and fire directed to be applied. In vain did they protest that he had got all. He persisted in his cruelty. The flames now began to approach their persons, and their cries were heart-rending, while they implored him to turn them adrift in a boat at the mercy of the waves, rather than torture them thus and keep the zephyr, when, if there was money, he would surely find it. Finding that no further confession was extorted, he began to believe the truth of these protestations, and ordered his men to throw water below and quench the flames. The unfortunate sufferers were then released and taken into the roundhouse, and the seamen, children, and myself allowed to go on board the brig. There we were, left for a while at liberty, while the pirates caroused and exulted over their booty. When they had finished their meal, the captain told them that it was now time to return to their own vessel, and ordered me to accompany them. I hesitated at first to obey, but he was not to be thwarted, and drawing his knife, threatened with an oath to cut my head off if I did not move instanter. I thought it best to pretend ignorance of his order, and said that I had not heard him at first, and hoped, as I had some accounts to settle with Mr. Lumsden, that he would give me time to do so before he took me away. He complied with some difficulty. I then requested Mr. Lumsden to sign a written bill of lading for the two tierces of coffee belonging to me on board, consigned to Mr. Watson, ship-chandler, in London, and also a promissory note for eighteen pounds ten shillings, payable to the same person, on account of monies due to me. Having made these arrangements, I returned on board the schooner, and the captain asked me if I had my watch. I answered in the affirmative. He took it from me, and looked at it, and, admiring it, gave very strong hints that he should like to have it. I took no notice of the hint, and said that it was a gift from my aged mother, whom I never expected to see again, and should like to send it to her by Mr. Lumsden. But I was afraid that his people would take it away from that person if I gave it into his hands. "'Your people have a very bad opinion of us,' he replied. "'But I will convince you that we are not so bad as we are represented to be. Come along with me, and your watch shall go safely home.' Saying this, he took me on board the Zephyr, with the watch in his hand, and gave it to Mr. Lumsden, and desired his people not to take it from him on any account. I then asked to remain a while, and bid farewell to the children and crew, which he, with some difficulty, allowed me to do. In this interval, the owner's son, who was on board learning navigation, said that his quadrant and all his clothes had been taken away, and begged me to recover them for him, if possible. I promised him I would do my best, and represented to the pirate that he was the son of poor parents, and could ill afford the loss, and begged that they might be restored. He sulkily replied that I was presuming too much, but this must be my last request, and the lad might have his things, with the exception of checked shirts, which must be left for his crew. Having performed this good office, the captain became impatient for my return, 
and I was obliged to take a hasty but affecting leave of my former messmates to become one of a desperate banditti. The inhuman wretch thought even this affecting ceremony too long, and drove me on board at the point of his knife. When I had reached the deck of the Corsair, he asked me if I had got every instrument necessary to the purposes of navigation, and if not, to go and get them, for he would have no excuses by and by, and if I made any he would kill me. I answered that I had got all that was necessary, and he then gave orders to cast loose from the Zephyr, and told Mr. Lumsden he might proceed on his voyage, but on no account to steer for the Havana, for if he overtook him on that course, he would destroy him and his vessel together. He promised that he would not touch there, and the vessels were accordingly cast loose in a short time afterwards. Mr. Lumsden, Captain Cooper, and the children stood on the gangway and bade me adieu, and my heart sunk within me as the two vessels parted. The horrors of my situation now rushed upon my mind. I looked upon myself as a wretch upon whom the world was closed forever. Exposed to the brutality of a ferocious and remorseless horde of miscreants, doomed to destruction and death, and, perhaps to worse, to disgrace and ignominy, to become the partaker of their enormities and be compelled, I knew not how soon, to embrew my hands in the blood of a fellow-creature, and, perhaps, a fellow-countryman. The distraction, grief, and painful apprehensions of my parents, and of one to whom I was under the tenderest of all engagements, filled my mind with terror. I could no longer bear to look upon the scene my fancy presented to me, and I would have sought a refuge from my own miserable thoughts in self-destruction. But my movements were watched, and I was secured, and a guard set over me. The captain then addressed me, and told me that if I made a second attempt, I should be lashed to a gun, and there left to die through hunger. And, for the sake of security, ordered me below, but at my earnest entreaty, I was allowed to remain on deck till it was dark. End of section one, part one.